You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... Spain has got far more recent memories than many countries of what it means to have a far-right government. After Spain's Vox Party becomes the third biggest force in Spain's Congress, how much further will the rise of right-wing politics in Europe go? My guests, Terry Stiasny and Michael Binion, will discuss that and the day's other news, including a row over the publication of an intelligence report into Russian funding in British politics and why France's boulangerie are closing at an alarming rate. Plus, Monocle's Jamie Waters unravels the weird world of fashion buzzwords. Sustainability, seasonless, concept store and experience, terms that in recent years have been bandied about ad nauseum. I'm Emma Nelson, and Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. I'm joined by Terry Stiasny, a political journalist and author, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist at The Times newspaper. Welcome both to the studio. First, Spain joined many other countries in Europe this weekend by seeing the rise of the far right into its mainstream politics. Vox have become the third biggest force in the country's Congress, following an election that was supposed to be the political solution to the long-time Catalonian crisis. Terry, what we see in Spain is unfortunately catching up with something that's been very much part of the mainstream in European politics – Why has it taken Spain so long to get to this point? I think perhaps because Spain has got far more recent memories uh, than many countries of what it means to have uh, an extreme, a far-right government. I mean, we've seen all the uh, coverage recently of talk about uh, reburying Franco in a in a different grave, uh, and I think you know that memory had been much more recent than the memory of the Franco era for Spain than than say in many other countries, and so you know there was a natural reaction against that. And I think one of the things that has led to Vox becoming more popular is this perception that uh, the Spanish state is in some way under more threat. So one of their policies has been the call to have direct rule over Catalonia and the whole Catalan issue seems to have uh, boosted their popularity, I suppose. And also you've had a lot of political instability over the last few years in Spain. And I think when traditional parties don't look like the answer, they haven't been able to form stable government, then there starts to be more room for parties at the edges. Indeed. There have been warnings that the Catalonia crisis, Michael, would foster the rise of the far right because you start getting people to think about identity and place and where they belong and who belongs where. And that automatically creates a little vacuum that could be filled by a far-right voice. Yes, indeed. And, of course, the irony is that it was under Franco that the Catalan issue really uh, was one of the major things that uh, caused intense dissatisfaction with his government towards the end of his life. Uh, The Catalan issue and also, of course, the Basque separatists in the north of Spain. Uh, The Basque problem rumbled on uh, with outbreaks of considerable violence uh, in the region and assassinations, and that finally has been brought, it seems, to a kind of peaceful 
end, but the Catalan issue has reignited, and I think this is something that is potentially very destabilizing for Spain, and it's actually potentially very bad for Barcelona itself as a regional capital. I mean, flight is, uh, a capital has fled from uh, the city, and uh, lots of people are now finding that it's better to do business elsewhere in Spain. So a lot of Spaniards are very worried about the separatist issue and rally around a a party that appears to inherit the same tough approach to that as Franco did. We have two sorts of far right that people are now beginning to identify. We have the extremist far right, the stuff that scares us, and what's sort of like often dressed up as something slightly more acceptable, the populist far right, but there's not much separate, separating them. And some are saying that you you have ex- support for the extremist far right when you have economic insecurity, when your country is is, is facing poverty and the populist radical right is more associated about you know an identity crisis a cultural backlash arguably spain has suffered both of those things hasn't it but it is sort of economically in the recovery so where are we looking at where spain's going to be going because it has total political paralysis now well that is yes one of the one of the difficult things is how do other parties i suppose try to you know combat that perception i mean if you look in in some other countries where the the right has done well it has it has happened in some cases where the traditional party system was was very stuck. I mean, it's interesting if we look at, say, take the example of Austria, for instance. So the the FPO was had come into government, um, but in the most recent elections, their support collapsed partly because of uh, corruption allegations. And one of the reasons they had first become prominent was this perception that the existing party system was was stuck. It was corrupt. That things were divided up between the larger parties, and, it, and in France as well. I think that was part of the uh, the attraction of of Le Pen was the idea that you know the big political parties you know, had a hold over everything, and those political parties have started to come apart. I mean, you can't generalise over much because in every country, you know, there are regional differences, there are you know individual circumstances. Uh, but I think yeah, there is a strong attraction of this, particularly the populist far right at the moment, because people yeah they want to talk about their identity, they want to talk about where they belong and there are in many places where people feel you know left behind and distance from central government wherever that may be how popular is the populist right at the moment michael i mean we've seen a tussle for power in the last few years especially in europe in france macron managed to be to, to defeat the far right the netherlands the same thing in germany alternative für deutschland said it was going to make headway but ultimately didn't quite try get that get that grip but we have this happening in Spain now and even last week Emmanuel Macron the president of France was playing an anti-immigration card some saying in order to you know make himself attractive to the far right do we where are we in the war with the far right well so far the far right hasn't had a real breakthrough except in perhaps two countries uh, Hungary and Poland where the two governments are certainly authoritarian, well, more authoritarian in Hungary, but certainly uh, what we would traditionally see as right-wing and certainly populist, uh, calling on uh, local, um, well, calling on traditional values and trying to 
project their parties as upholders of the true national spirit. Uh, and uh, in other countries, the far right was on the verge of a breakthrough, but at the last moment uh, seemed to collapse. Uh, Italy is a classic example where Salvini tried to force an election thinking that uh, he would ride the wave of anti-immigrant sentiment. And in the end, it didn't work. He, he was sort of slightly pushed aside and has, is now out of government. I think the interesting point is where the traditional uh, uh, kind of appeal to identity crisis and the more uh, perhaps hardline political nationalist uh, right, where they merge, that's where you get dangers. And the real worry to some extent is Germany, where they have merged, because the AFD did start off as um, a sort of anti-Euro party. And it was very much uh, the dissatisfaction in eastern Germany of those who were uh, sort of felt excluded from the reunited Germany. But the AFD now is embracing some of those very, very unpleasant racist policies, at least verbally they're embracing them, that one associates with the Nazis. And the same phrases, the same kind of instinct reactions uh, are coming back. And that is a real worry. I don't think it's a huge worry for Germany itself because there are a big enough bulk of people who feel that never again. But it is there. Terry, how do you feel about the fact that we're having this conversation today in 2019, two days after many celebrated the fall of the Berlin Wall? Yes, and I think you know, Michael's absolutely right to say you know, that the FD has grown in popularity recently. But I think their support, although it is extending further, is still very highly concentrated in the Old East. And yes, as we remembering 30 years since the Berlin Wall, it's, it's just it's striking how much the politics of the Old East Germany are still uh, different from, from many in the West. Um, but I think it's not all is despair. I mean, you look at some of these parties, for instance, in Hungary, uh, the local elections, Fidesz actually did surprisingly badly. Um, and they lost the, the mayoralty of Budapest, for instance. Now, that may be, you know, the liberals in the cities deciding that we have had enough of this. Um, but, you know, there is still an electoral way out. And I think, you know, the parties of, of the mainstream, the parties of the centre just need to think more carefully about how exactly they tackle that threat. Let's move on to another story of politics of old and new. How much has Russia been meddling in British politics? We may never know, as the publication of a parliamentary report that investigated just that was blocked last week by Number 10 Downing Street. But that hasn't stopped the press from trying to find out. The Sunday Times yesterday claimed that no fewer than nine Russian business people have donated money to the Conservative Party and they were named in the document. Michael, I mean, working on the inside of the Times, tell us a little bit about more about what is being claimed in this article. And the fact is, the claims are being made of pretty of absolutely illegal activities here. Yes, well, uh, it's largely donations to the Conservative Party from prominent oligarchs or Russian residents in Britain or those with access to a lot of money, giving money as it were, under the counter, not necessarily open, clear political uh, donations. And the Conservatives simply accepting the money because they're very useful and, and cozying up to some of these people. Now, how much that is organised Russian infiltration of the British political system, I think is open to doubt. I mean, the fact that they're Russians rather than, say, uh, Nigerians or 
Chinese or other people makes it immediately a kind of conspiracy that this is a Kremlin-organised plot. Now, I have no doubt at all that these oligarchs do find it useful to keep in with what they think are going to be the, the people who are going to regulate their, uh, their taxes or their status or their stay in Britain. And indeed, they are worried about the fact that Britain has finally decided that dirty money is not welcome in this country. And uh, the Conservatives probably overwhelmingly, but perhaps also other parties, have been turning a blind eye to these oligarchs coming in with pots of money that has been illegally earned on the basis of corruption or, or whatever and giving it to the Tories. Terry, would you agree with what Michael just said? Forgive me if I summarise it. What's happening here is this, these are just mainly rich people who just happen to be Russian as opposed to Russians who happen to be rich, who are meddling in British politics. Yes, I think obviously I, you know, <laughs> assume neither of us have, none of us have seen the report yet, which is precisely, you know, what's at issue here. I think the question is of many donors who are by origin Russian, but have since become British citizens and are since living in Britain, because if they were, you, you know, you're not allowed to donate to, to political parties if you're not a British uh, citizen, British um, resident. So I think one of the problems that's happened here is just because this report was due to be published before the election because it hasn't come out there is room for huge amounts of speculation about what exactly is in it and what exactly is alleged and then the more that the government says we're not going to publish this report in the run-up to the election the more people can speculate about it uh, and so you know we don't know exactly what's what's being alleged we don't know the level of influence that is is being suggested obviously some people have have leaked some of the testimony and you know some of this is is coming out now but uh you know, it might be a better idea if, if the government did publish this report now. I think it's highly, extremely unlikely that we're going to get see it uh, before the election. And even after the election, there will have to be a new intelligence and security committee that's composed according to whoever whoever wins and the balance of the party. So this could be really kicked into the long grass well into the new year, which I think really is worrying. Michael, we are in the situation now where arguably, well, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if someone said there is a, there's a suggestion that the Russians have been meddling in, in British politics, then the press would be all over it and we would not hear the end of it. But now are we in a state now where the electorate, frankly, doesn't care that much? They don't care. And also they think Russians meddle everywhere, which, unfortunately, they tend to. How much it's effective, how much it's an organised plot and how much attention the British electorate pays to what the Kremlin is doing, frankly, I think is, has been wildly over overplayed. Uh, yes, the Russians can't resist meddling whenever they see a chance. They always have done. I mean, that's that's what they do. Uh, but oh, I mean, but what would what would the Russians want with with little old England here, little old well, UK, brand UK? What what possible mischief could they make? You see, Britain's still quite a key member of NATO, and Russia still does find NATO something of an anathema. And uh, if the West is strong and united and taking a tough stand on Ukraine. Uh, and other areas where the Russians have vital interests, that's not to Moscow's advantage. And therefore, a slightly fragmented West, and particularly a West that's really not united on main issues of defence or security or um, solidarity and all that, that is to Russia's possible advantage, at least if you think in zero-sum games, which, unfortunately, the Kremlin always does. So, uh, you know, the chance for just causing mischief is sometimes welcome. But how much it's organised, and most important, how much it's successful, I very much, uh, I have my doubts. One thing that we don't really sort of think about is the fact that EU sanctions should be stopping from all this happening. 
Uh, I would assume it depends what uh, the origin is of the money and what the or what the citizenship is of you know of the particular individuals concerned. Because you know if you, you may have come from Russia, you may have long since come from Russia and be a, a very strong opponent of the Kremlin. After all, there are plenty of, of Russian people in in Britain who uh, who, who have, uh, dislike Putin as as much as as many other people. I think one of the other things we should also be concerned about that we don't really know to what extent this report covers it is uh, the effect of online activities and the effect of you know trolls and social media people trying to influence the debate in that sense and I think that is another uh, a very worrying area that's perhaps not as obvious as donating large sums of money or having people in positions of influence but you know these kind of troll farms that are sending out that are trying to influence the online debate as well. And let's not forget Michael that we do have a famous Russian oligarch who owns one of the United Kingdom's most influential newspapers, Lebedev in the Evening Standard Standard. I mean, that's that's hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Uh, yes, I wouldn't he's say... He's no great fan of Putin. Uh, no, he's not. And I wouldn't necessarily say the Evening Standard is one of the most... It's a decent London paper. Um, but, yes, uh, his influence, his Kremlin links are very, very uh, removed from the daily coverage of news in the Evening Standard. I think... To many, in, to many people, he has been an exemplary owner. He's uh, promoted the paper when it was in difficulties. He's managed to rescue it from uh, possible closure. And uh, he, as you say, is not necessarily a mouthpiece for the Kremlin by any means. And the fact that he is of Russian origin, well, various people are. I mean, uh, Rupert Murdoch is of Australian origin. Does that matter? Does that influence his policies? I don't think so. Michael Binion and Terry Stiasny. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Emma. Two people are in critical condition following a day of violent protest in Hong Kong. One protester was injured when he was shot at close range by a member of the city-state's police, while a pro-Beijing activist was also doused in flammable liquid and set alight after arguing with protesters. Bolivia's president Evo Morales has resigned after nearly 14 years in power. The head of the country's army called on Morales to cede power following mass demonstrations over his disputed election win. The outgoing president claims that he is the victim of a coup by Bolivia's generals. And two Australian states have declared a state of emergency as the country's deadly bushfires are expected to get much worse. The fires have already killed three people and destroyed hundreds of homes in New South Wales and Queensland. The state of emergency will last for seven days and allows the fire service to direct government agencies. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and joining me in the studio, Michael Binion and Terry Stiasny. The boulangerie, or bakery, has been one of the great social, economic and cultural baguette-shaped pillars of French village life. The queues for bread, the chatter and the sense of community all make up not just an important internal part of society, but to the rest of the world, it's part of what makes France so very French, but no longer. Bakeries are closing across the country's villages, with a reluctance by the younger generation to enter a profession full of nighttime working and burns. Terry, the last time I was driving through the French countryside, I couldn't find a French boulangerie. What about you? Uh, no, I my my parents live in a French village, and so I can give you the chapter and verse. I think the ones that are doing 
well are part some some of them are chain bakeries so uh, a lot of french people much like the rest of us in elsewhere in europe are going to buy their bread in the supermarket because it's easy to park and it's easy to drive to and so you're not perhaps going to your traditional little local bakery in the village uh, and there are quite a lot of big chains now that have got into the bakery market and again they are getting a lot of the custom uh, yeah in in the south near where my where my family are you find a lot that have closed down but then you also find some little local businesses that are starting up trying to appeal perhaps to the sort of higher end of the market making their own jam making more traditional kind of old-fashioned bread rather than the big uh, mass-produced type so I think it's 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 not all despair but certainly uh, the situation is changing it's a situation that's changing and Michael it's 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 a how much actually is this part of French society? I mean, um, there's an article in the New York Times talking about the demise of French village life because of this village life that has been so closely knit into the, into France's external, I hate to say it, soft power. When you have novels such as Madame Bovary, Flaubert, depicting a certain time in time in French history, which is just steeped in the village life and its influence over people's lives. That's right, and I think that's what the whole significance of this debate is all about. It's really more to do with, is there still a focus for village life? Boulangeries were the place where people would meet and chat and you get there in the morning you to gossip with your neighbours. It's not so central, say, to British life, but then other things are pubs or the post office, say, and little villages are losing both of those fairly rapidly, and all um, industrialised countries are facing this problem of keeping alive their rural communities in an age where bigger means better and you know faster means uh, leaving behind those who are not so clued in or wired up or whatever. Uh, and I think there is a real nostalgia for a way of life that is vanishing fast, and that is very much in France, uh, centred around the, the bakeries. And there's an existential threat here to the French identity, given the fact that every time you do buy a baguette, you see tradition written all over absolutely everything. Now, if you have a new generation of, of French people who... You could perhaps forgive them for saying, no, I'm not going to get up at two o'clock in the morning to make to make bread for everybody. You you actually start to drill deeply into a country's identity, don't you? Yes, and I think, you know, it's baked in, ha-ha, to you know, even the French state and some of the controversies about the, the bakeries have been to do with how much the French state actually regulates the selling of bread. And that comes from the revolution, you know, the keeping the price of bread down has been a really important thing. And it's only in the last few decades that they've stopped saying, you know, this is the maximum price for your baguette. Um but you know the French, the government uh, legislated about the opening hours that they have to open every day. They legislated about when bakeries bakers can take their summer holidays and things like that are still governed by the state. And so as France tries to reform certain things, then other things uh, do fall fall by the wayside. So uh, yeah, it is very very key to you know part of French identity. Uh, but I don't think you know gluten free. I don't think has caught on quite as much yet in France. <laughs> I don't think people are giving up baguettes completely. The way you speak suggests the idea of bread as what some person has described as a municipal service. I mean, it is that, that, that reliance on the state that people have to ensure that people are fed. It's quite simple in France in that way. And that's arguably something that lots of other countries have lost. That's pretty basic. I mean, if you look at the Russian Revolution, bread was one of the key demands. And in fact, throughout Soviet times, bread was also very carefully regulated. It was very, very cheap, so much so that people were often buying it just to feed to the uh, and it was uh, 
it was very good quality, actually. And since the fall of communism, that importance on bread has more or less vanished because it was ideological importance on bread. Uh, the communists felt that this was the basic provision for ordinary general Russian people and that it was an essential duty of the state to provide it. Well, that's gone. And I think that's gone throughout much of the Western world. Oh, to be a Russian duck. <laughs> Finally, we cannot express how agonising this experience is for us Brits gathered in a studio expressing ourselves because a survey has indicated that more than half of us UK people are shy and cripplingly so. Um, Michael, are you shy? I think I'm not. I think I, I ought to be a bit... I, it would be better for me if I was... It would be better for other people if I was a bit more shy, probably. I think I was quite shy when I was about 16 or 17. Yes, I was quite shy. And particularly shy with, with girls. I mean, I think this is <laughs> typical of adolescence. But... um. I think I've sort of got over that. I mean, I've been around long enough to stop being shy. How about you, Terry? Oh, I said, as I say, it sounds strange for someone who's just spent about the last 15 minutes <laughs> talking in public. Uh, but no, I am still massively shy uh, in, in yes, normal social situations that don't involve just me expressing my opinions to a, to a willing audience. Uh, yes, I think it's a very British thing. It is part of this idea of reserve, not wanting to to trouble people, wanting to understand the rules by which society operates and not being entirely confident about that. I mean, one of my favourite Twitter accounts is the Very British Problems accounts, which always gives you the interpretation of what British people say and what they really mean. And I don't know if you've watched Fleabag recently, but there's a brilliant scene where her sister, they have a, a cafe that has a chatty Wednesday and everybody's supposed to go into the cafe and talk to each other and the sister just goes and goes, no, no. No, 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 no. I mean, she couldn't deal with this idea that you could go into a cafe and talk to strangers. Being shy doesn't help you if you're a diplomat, does it, Michael? Or does it? Because one, one wonders how this whole issue of shyness fits into the ability of Britain to and British diplomats to actually make their case felt or make their voices heard across the world. Yes. Well, shyness is not quite the same as reserve. Reserve is uh, keeping your opinions to yourself, not expressing your emotions. Shyness is a kind of crippling lack of self-confidence confidence. Now, if you're a diplomat, uh, you can be far from, you're not shy at all, but you need to keep play, play your cards close to your chest. I mean, the definition of a diplomat, especially of a British one, is someone who thinks twice before he says nothing. Uh, and then you, you just keep your cards close to your chest. And do the Brits have a reputation for, for shyness or reserve? I mean, when, you, when other countries have to deal with this? Certainly reserve, yes, absolutely. We don't open out to others very easily. Uh, but on the other hand, people say that when you get to know British people, they are quite warm and friendly in their emotions and in their expression of, uh, in e each other, in, in our individual uh, responses to other people. Um, but I think we're still reserved. What we don't like doing is making a fuss. Uh, we don't like to uh, raise our hands and be the only one to say, that's wrong, you know, I, I protest about that. Whereas, you see, French or Italians would be much more vocal in making a fuss over something they don't like. I wonder on a grander scale, though, that we quite like to kick up a fuss. I mean, one need only think about our relationship with the European Union. We have been very shy sitting there quietly on the sidelines, not wishing to do anything apart from, say, no half the time. So I wonder whether individually we're quite a shy bunch, Terry, and I confess to being with you. I absolutely love being the person who asks the questions. Woe betide anyone asks me anything. And yes, I'm sitting in a dark room on my own talking to myself. That's what radio is all about. But then when we come as an international um, 
facing country, we do quite like to kick up a fuss, don't we? I think we're probably quite good at being passive aggressive, um, <laughs> at sort of saying, well, I don't want to cause any trouble, but actually, yeah, we just do want to leave this. And, you know, I think it's it's the way it's phrased. You're not necessarily going to kick up a, a big fuss, but uh, a stoically standing there and being difficult fuss is, is a different matter. Terry Stiasny and Michael Vinion, thank you very much indeed for joining us. In a moment, Monocle's Jamie Waters and why we need less buzzwords and more action in the world of retail. You're listening to Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson. Stay tuned. And if you've just joined us, a very warm welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. And finally today, Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, examines the state of his profession's voice and vocabulary. Last week, Gautier Borsarello, a menswear aficionado who runs the Parisian vintage shop Le Vif, posted a photo on his Instagram. Its caption read... The word vintage is now dead. It has been so overused it's become meaningless. I will not use it anymore to define what I do. It was an incisive comment on buzzwords. Fashion, like other industries from food to film, loves a quick, sellable phrase. To vintage we can add sustainability, seasonless, concept store and experience as terms that in recent years have been bandied about ad nauseum. There have always been concepts that are particularly popular at any moment. Yet social media, which thrives on punchy captions and pithy hashtags, surely means labels become exhausted quicker than ever. The thing is, many of the words du jour denote important ideas. Fashion brands should be engaging with sustainable practices. Physical retailers should be offering interesting experiences if they're to get shoppers off laptops. The key is to actually do these things rather than merely using the words connected to them as selling ploys. Or maybe we just need to come up with some alternative jargon. Thanks to our fashion editor, Jamie Waters, there. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Nick Toomey and Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Zoe Kilburn and Kenya Scarlett. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 hours London time. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 